welcome to another episode of Chevron's, the podcast for the Enlisted Force. I'll be one of your hosts, Chief Master Sergeant Sean Sullivan. And I will be your second host, co-host. Good morning, Chief. How you doing? This is uh, Tech Sergeant Jay Whitaker, uh, uh, 102nd Intelligence Wing uh, Public Affairs. Uh, just holding the fort down. How you doing this morning, Chief? I'm doing good. And we have a great guest today uh, in our effort to always try to find new and unique Air Force leaders and Air Force opportunities. I have reached out to Chief Master Sergeant Chuck Powers. He is the National Guard Bureau Legislative Liaison. So his position is up on Capitol Hill doing all kinds of wonderful and exciting things. He's had a diverse and excellent career. And without any further ado, I would like to welcome Chief Master Sergeant Powers. Chief Powers, how are you today? Hey, Chief Sullivan. Good morning. How are you? I am doing well. Um, uh, thank you for uh, inviting me onto this podcast. I've been following uh, Chevron's uh, uh, probably for a few months since I heard of it, probably the last time we interacted and I heard that you were doing a, a podcast. And I, I think it's amazing uh, providing this opportunity to airmen at all levels uh, to hear some of the leaders that you've had on here and um, one, to learn their experiences and, and understand just other airmen's stories and on how they've gotten to where they've gotten to. Uh, I think that teaches us a lot. Uh, and I appreciate all the insight that this podcast has provided. Uh, so thank you again for having me on and uh, welcome Tech Sergeant uh, Whitaker as well. I, I appreciate your time as well. Thanks, Chief. And Chief Powers, thank you for that. And that that's the essence of what we're trying to do here. And one of the things I noticed as I rose through the ranks is I was probably a senior master sergeant or a chief before I knew everything that was out there. As a matter of fact, I, I'll be 100% honest with you. I really didn't understand what the National Guard Bureau Legislative Liaison did, or even that we had one, probably until about three years ago. And I think that it is such a big position that you have. Uh, there, there's just so much that goes on and there's so much that we're trying to do for the Air Force and for our enlisted force that you're almost directly involved with and, and touching on a daily basis. I thought it was important for uh, for you to get on and to let uh, the airmen know uh, what your office is all about and what you do there. But before we go into what you do, I want to know a little bit about you. So can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I started out active duty Air Force and uh, I did that for just about five years. And uh, uh, from there, I went on to the Guard, the New York Air National Guard uh, at the 109th in Schenectady, New York. Um, uh, I, I kind of I was actually kind of found the Guard accidentally. You know, I um, went from active duty and I was on terminal leave. And one of my buddies was a recruiter at the 109th in, in New York. And asked me to just come talk to the CE commander because I grew up in a CE career field. So, um, so I'm like, okay, I'll go talk. I don't know if I want to go back in. I do miss it, you know. Um, and I talked to the CE commander, the CE chief, and, uh, well, they sold me. I, I was in, and uh, next thing I knew, I was, I was back in the military, and um, it, was, uh, it was great. Loving it ever since. I have no regrets there, you know. So I was at New York for about six years. Um, and while I was in Afghanistan, I applied for an NGB uh, stat tour uh, to manage civil engineer deployments. And uh, I did that for a few years. And then the stat tour program grabbed me and said, hey, we're going to develop you into an A8 position doing uh, strategic planning and the palm process. 
uh, and I said, uh, I don't know what that is. And I don't know if I want to do that. And, uh, you know, I had some good mentors say, no, you want to do this. Uh, I was the only enlisted in A8 uh, managing, help manage the palm process. And um, uh, that was a really um, great experience, an eye-open experience, seeing how the Air Force manages the palm process. Um, and then from there, I, I came back to A4, A7, um, as a branch chief um, for deployments for training uh, and all deployments and training like stuff for civil engineers. Um, on from that position, I went and I was the Dang superintendent when Lieutenant General Rice was the Dang. So I did that for about a year and a half, uh, which another eye-opening experience and totally outside my comfort zone. Um, and then I decided at that point, you know, I was a senior master sergeant, I needed to go back to the field. Uh, I, I found a position and was hired as the civil engineer, uh, senior enlisted leader um, at, at the 140th in Colorado, Buckley Space Force Base now. Uh, I was a squadron chief for just about a year, and then the state grabbed me and asked me to compete for the maintenance group superintendent position. So I uh, went over again, seeing another side of the Air Force, seeing how, you know, the support function works as a CE chief going to a being a maintenance group chief in a fighter wing was a was a really interesting uh, experience um, that really gave challenged me in many ways um, and also added more things to my leadership toolbox, which which was amazing. Um, and then from there, um, you know, I, I competed for the legislative liaison position, and here I am today um, as the sole air enlisted member on the legislative liaison team. Um, you know, representing CNGB, uh, the vice chief, uh, SCA Whitehead, Chief Williams. Um, so that that's a pretty humbling and uh, amazing experience so far as well. Uh, so that's me and my uh, military career in a nutshell, Chief. Well, I didn't think that there was anybody out there that would have had as eclectic a path through the military as I did. But now talking to you, so active duty, 109th, those are the 109th, the ski birds with the Arctic mission, correct? Yes, that is correct. I, I was able to experience um, Antarctica for about two months as well on a deployment up there, which was amazing. That I should is, say down there. That is fantastic. And then just showing what something like an NGB stat tour can do for somebody's career. And we get these things done all the time. And that's one of the things that, that uh, was really I never really understood that as a tech sergeant or as a master sergeant, we would get these, you know, NGB stat tours and you're like, okay, cool. NGB stat tour. I don't know what that is. Um, I'm just going to move on. And I think one of the reasons that it doesn't resonate in a lot of wings is because people don't understand what the stat tour is or what the process is or what you can get out of it. Even if you don't want to use it as a vehicle to like in your situation, it became a vehicle for you to stay within the NGB system, leave and come back. But for a lot of people that might not be the case. So can you cover that from your perspective, exactly what the stat tour was and what you got out of it, even if it was just to do a tour and go back to your unit? Absolutely. I think the STAT tour program, uh, first and foremost, is, is a great uh, developmental opportunity for any airman to go up and, and get that breadth of knowledge at the headquarters level. Um, and, and we have that. You know, we call it the STAT tour program. And what that is, is Title 10 positions 
at NGB, it could be at um, the Air Readiness Center, the Army Readiness Center. We have joint staff there, and it can also be at the Pentagon. And then there's also several positions within the TEC, um, is another example, um, which is in Tennessee, or um, the Air Readiness Center, Air Personnel Readiness Center in Colorado. Uh, more stat tour positions there as well. Uh, but what those positions do for an airman is provide them a 30, 40,000 foot view of the programs in the Air Force, in the Air National Guard, at the National Guard Bureau level um, that gets them that knowledge that they can't necessarily get in the field. Um, and then there's a lot of different opportunities, um, like you heard um, from my path. You know, I did, I had no clue. One, I didn't even know what an A staff was. I didn't know what A1, A2, A3. I didn't know that we even had those or what that meant. So just to understand an headquarters structure, uh, because just because the NGB has the A staff, well, then you also learn is how the entire DOD is structured in those type of, um, in that construct. Um, and to take that kind of information and bring it back to the field, your organization, rather you go to a squadron uh, group or the wing level, is going to be so much better off because you understand um, that higher level. So when you're working through manpower issues, resourcing issues, uh, deployment mobilization process issues, you're going to know who to contact at that headquarters level to get something fixed. Uh, so it empowers the airmen that do go back to the field to educate every level at the wing, especially members that don't come up to an headquarters level. Um, so it definitely does a lot. I think it's also important to note that it is easy to want to stay at the headquarters level once you get here, but it is so important to try and bring that knowledge back to the field. Um, as well as to continue um, your career broadening, you can be an expert, you know, at the within the stat tour program or at the headquarters level. Uh, but what you what you lose, and and I figured this out as well, and it didn't. It took me to get back to the field to realize it. Is it's not that you lose the field perspective; it's that you are holding on to the field perspective that you had when you left the field to come up to the stat tour program. So that field perspective that I had in 2011 when I left New York to come up to the stat tour program is not the same two, three, four years later. That field perspective has changed because as we all know, every process, every program uh, that we have in the military changes constantly. And when any change comes to a regulation or to a program, it affects that airman, that soldier down at the field level. And if you're staying at headquarters and you're not down there to uh, embrace those changes, you don't understand the struggle that the field is having. Um, so that's why I think it's also important to, to go back and get a fresh perspective uh, of the, the field as well. I couldn't agree with you more. Um... And the importance of these NGB staff tours is is just fantastic for uh, uh, emerging leaders. And one of the points that I like to make on that is I was talking to one of your fellow New York uh, Air National Guard airmen uh, just recently who had done a staff tour. They had gone on a staff tour for two years and returned back to the field. Uh, was a tech sergeant, uh, tech sergeant or master sergeant, uh, tech sergeant, um, and. I asked, well, what was your driving motivation? He said, well, I had a conversation 
with our state command chief, and I believe that it was uh, uh, Chief uh, Richardson who we've had on here at the time. I believe that was the command chief or could have been the command chief before him. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but said so I, I, I told the command chief that they, they asked what I did, and I said, well, I'm Justa. And command chief stopped me and said, what do you mean you're Justa? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I just do this for the Air National Guard, and I don't feel like I have any value. And they encouraged this airman to apply to a stat tour because they thought that if you could get to that that 40,000 foot view, if you can get beyond the tactical and even beyond the operational level of what your wing does, and you look at the entire strategic picture, and then you look down and go through all the little wickets and say, geez, it doesn't matter what I do. If I was not needed, if I was, but that that position was not necessary, needed, and, and important for the for, for the current and the future fights ahead, it wouldn't be there. So it doesn't matter what you do as a professional warrior. All these positions are important. And they came back and they had a renewed sense of, of importance over what their AFSC and mission set was. And now they were rising through uh, the ranks and through the positions in that mission set and motivating all the other airmen that had that same AFSC to understand we are important. We might not be the, you know, the person flying the plane, or we might not be um, the door kicker uh, in, uh, you know, some operation in some country, kicking the door down and, and tossing a frag in. But if you weren't important and vital, you wouldn't be there. And I think popping up and seeing that and then bringing it back down to the tactical level, so much for your development and so much tie in with the airmen around you. Uh, so I am a firm believer in both NGB and Joint Force Headquarters stat tours because I think that it really invigorates you as an, as an airman in your career, but it helps you bring back that knowledge of how important every single one of us wearing this uniform is. And if you weren't needed and you weren't a professional warrior, you wouldn't be here. Absolutely, Chief. And, and really what that gets to is, you know, making sure – um, airmen understand the why and being able to uh, explain at that 30, 40,000 foot level of what we're doing and why we're doing it and why every single position at this, at your wing is important is very, it is, I would say, uh, it is definitely needed in order to help inspire and motivate them airmen to, to do well. They need to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Absolutely. And one of the things that that I always like to do is when things come up and we have these these uh, uh, our, our interviews and we're recording our chevrons, something some process will come up that we as senior leaders are firmly aware of and we understand. But we have a lot of junior airmen that are going to go. All right. Well, the chief said he was part of a pom 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 pom. What the heck was that? So, chief, <laughs> could you just in a nutshell explain what the process is, uh, what the acronym stands for and what the process is? So that our our uh, uh, our audience that's out there that doesn't comprehend what that is or has have not experienced it yet have that awareness. Abs Thank you, Chief oh, yeah, Powers. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, yeah, I said palm process, right? Yeah. What does that mean to uh, you know A one C Smith down in the field, right? Uh, so palm, you know, it's program objective memorandum, uh, but really what that means is. DOD has a process to, they are always planning a five-year, what we call a FIDEP. That is a, a five-year plan of how the DOD is going 
what kind of funds they need to operate based on the national defense strategy um, and the national military strategy. How do we support these two strategies? Well, there's a huge, um, every department has an eight. Uh, for example, we have an A8 um, and their sole job is to continue to uh, what we like to call the engine shop. They are constantly churning all these different um, plans and strategies to figure out what it's going to cost to run the Air National Guard for the next five years with all the missions that it has um, operationally um, and how it fits into the bigger picture. And that palm process for the Air National Guard ties into the Air Force's palm process because at the end of the day, the Air Force and the Air National Guard, they, they obviously support each other, right? Um, so in, the, in any given year, you're, you're submitting every year what the Air National Guard needs for that, the following five years. Um, and that's really, you know, very high level of, of what the palm process is. There's a lot that goes into it. There's uh, an example would be, hey, you know, the Air Force needs to pay a bill, meaning we are, we are getting uh, new F-35s and we need to buy 45 of them. I'm just making made up numbers right now. We need to buy 45 of them in, in FY24, fiscal year 24. Air National Guard, we need you to, you know, uh, for 45 of them, it's going to be $300 billion. I'm just making a number up. Air National Guard, we need you to pay $100 billion. Air Force Reserve, we need you to, uh, you know, pay another $100 billion. Where, how are we going to do that? The director of the Air National Guard, along with AA, is going to say, okay, we can cut this, this, and this. That means we have to... Um, you know, divest this wing and that wing um, in order to help pay this bill. Um, and, and that's part of, that's just a piece of how the palm process works. Again, there's, it, it takes a long time and it's a, it's a five-year process really, um, but that's just a, a simplified version of that um, in a nutshell. There's, there's a, it, it's, it's the bean counters as well as what we like to call the engine shop, the, the um, airmen working NA8 really trying to come up with all these different plans and figure out how how the Air National Guard is resourced as a whole. And one of the things you just touched upon there is one of the, the important, most important takeaways on the process. And, and I get this from, from airmen of all ranks uh, frequently. And that is, uh, why can't we have more X? Or why can't we have more of this rank? Or why can't we have more of these days? Or why can't we have more of this equipment? And the answer is that you can, but, and it, it all involves that process and trying to figure out what are you going to lose in order to gain? Because every time you get these five-year plans and you're looking at five years out and you say, okay, five years out, we're going to have this. Well, it's constant OJT to quote uh, a great leader from my past. It, it, the whole thing is constant OJT. By the time you get to year four, Things had to get shifted and moved around. Doesn't mean you're going to get any more money because you're unlikely to be able to plan on having, you know, a hundred billion dollars more. You have to plan based on what you got. And when you only have that limited pool, you have to prioritize. And it it would be nice if we could make everything a priority one, but that's kind of you know for for the airmen that are listening to that's kind of why uh, a, a lot of times. Uh, we don't get everything that we want because there has to be a give and take based on need, necessity. And as you said, the engine room and the bean counters got to get together 
and prioritize based on the combatant commanders and what what they need, uh, relevance. And there's just so much to it. And just Chief Powers, for you having been involved in that for so long, God bless you, because I just gave myself a popsicle headache in two minutes of trying to <laughs> break it down in my own head. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> I still don't understand it all, but it's a uh, it's a never ending game. So. Chief Whitaker, what are you thinking for question? Well, as far as uh, just legislative liaison, I mean, what exactly does your what is your day? How do you take care of yourself during the daytime? I mean, this you've you've just dropped a lot of knowledge on us in a short amount of time, and and I'm I'm like Chief Sullivan right now. I'm getting the popsicle popsicle headache, so I can't imagine what your day is like, and and just what, what time you start, when do you end, how do you take care of yourself, Chief? Hey, that's that's a great question, and 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 you know it's uh, it's obviously the the work life balance, right? Even though you know it's hard to say a work life balance sometimes because you know at times you have to prioritize work, but there's always yourself. If you're not taking care of yourself, um, uh, you can't give a hundred percent to your job. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's the work-life balance of, of trying to figure that out. And that's, that's a lot of planning and organization, I would say, is, is how I'm, tr how I try to take care of myself, look on, you know, what my week looks like, look like, look at what my day looks like and, and plan outwards. I'm always trying to look ahead. Um, but, you know, your question, Sergeant Whitaker, um, with NLL, I know I dropped a lot of information on the, on that palm process and, uh, uh, but really, you know, what my day looks like in, in the, you know, in the day of Chuck Powers being on, being at LL there, there's a lot that goes into it, but I think it's important to kind of explain, uh, you know, what is this position and what does it do? Um, is that okay if I kind of explain that first and then we can talk about, you know, what my day looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, as a legislative liaison, uh, you know, what I do and what all the other legislative liaisons do, we, our, our number one priority is we serve as the conduit of communication between Congress uh, and all Congress's agencies or sub offices that they have and the National Guard Bureau. We represent um, the chief of the National Guard Bureau on all, <clears throat> excuse me, all legislative um, actions. Uh, we're constantly informing and educating Congress on the, the National Guard's plans, programs, uh, budget policies, activities, and any kind of issues out there. So as you see, if something gets posted on Twitter one day, I, I guarantee you if it was negative towards the Department of Defense, there's a congressperson reaching out to the Department of Defense saying, what is going on here and why are you, what is this, please explain. And if it's, an, if it's something that uh, involves the National Guard, we will be up in the Chief's office explaining how he needs to communicate back to Congress of, of what this was and, and um, how we're either taking care of this airman or soldier or whatever the um, specific post was about. So that's a small example of that. Uh, so we're constantly advising um, the chief of the National Guard Bureau and all the other senior leaders, um, the joint staff directors uh, that represent the joint staff and the air staff and the army staff, all those GOs, we're advising them on the congressional activities that are going on on any given day, um, which is important right now as, as we're watching the NDAA 2023 go on. Um, uh, as we speak, um, the Senate is is uh, meeting on the NDAA, and you know that's that's DOD's bread and butter right there. That is what 
what we know, what programs are going to be supported or not supported or funded um, through that process. Um, and we manage basically all the the entire legislative program falls on on this office. Um, and that includes, you know, the, the, the planning for the out years. The chief um, testifies twice a year, the, the mandated uh, testimonies that he has to give Congress on the appropriation committees. And then any other um, hearings that come up, we are constantly prepping him for those. Uh, um, and then the legislative proposal process. Uh, and then responding to any formal congressional correspondence is, is what we're doing. Uh, another thing that we do as a liaison, really our job is as liaisons, we have to network with the congressional staff. The, the staff members, there's personal staff members and there's professional staff members. And we have to have a working relationship with them constantly. So, you know, when the chief needs to meet with, um, you know, uh, Senator Peters, let's say, uh, you know, we we know those staff members and we talk to them prior to understand what uh, the senator's uh, priorities are, what he is looking for out of the chief, and also to prep the chief on, hey, these are these are your current priorities, and this is what the senator's um, objectives are in communicating with you. So we constantly do engagements like that with Congress as well. Um, it's also important to note what we can't do. We cannot lobby. Uh, we are we are not uh, obviously in the business by law. We we can't just go and lobby for specific programs that are outside the current um, administration's um, priorities. So we are we are we inform and educate Congress on the National Guard. We inform them of you know any needs that we have uh, based on the priorities of the president and based on the national defense strategy. And then obviously the chief has a responsibility to Congress to give his best military advice um, to support uh, the overall mission. Um, so that's really what LL does. And, you know, in a, in a day of LL, I could be, uh, I, I really bounce back between a few places of work. So we have an office in the Senate side of the Capitol and we have an office on the House side. Uh, I am there uh, when we have engagements um, with either SEA Whitehead, uh, Chief Williams, the Vice Chief, uh, the Chief of the National Guard Bureau, and the Director of the Air National Guard. So any any engagement with those members, I am likely involved in some way, um, and we are with them when they meet with those those uh, members of staff or with Congress. Um, so I bounce between the Hill and I bounce between, uh, we all, I also have an office at the Pentagon here. Uh, that's where I'm sitting today. Um, so it's a, it's a shuffling game. I could be anywhere, any given day, depending on the day and depending on what's going on in Congress. Wow. Well, th thank you, Chief Powers. I, uh, I appreciate that. Sounds like you're getting your steps <laughs> in a lot. So, um, that as far as, uh, as far as your, and like you mentioned your day to day, but when was it, when was the day that you just, it all just kind of clicked for you and say, I just want to go work at the Pentagon? Oh, <laughs> um, I don't think that day ever really clicked. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I think I got to the, the pen, the, my first position at the Pentagon was, um, when I was, uh, when the director of the Air National Guard's office reached out to my supervisor at the time when I was a, in a senior position um, and they wanted me to, uh, they were interested to talk to me about being the superintendent for uh, General Rice. Um, 
And I'm like, oh, do I want to go work at the Pentagon? I do live about, uh, you know, probably two miles from the Pentagon. So I guess that's the convenient yeah, that helps. convenience there. <laughs> wow. uh, metroing rather than driving. So that, that was a plus. Um, but, you know, my ambitions was were always, you know, I was really focusing on whatever position I was in at the time. And at that time, I was at Andrews Air Force Base um, serving as a branch chief within the A4 division um, for civil engineering. And, you know, I wanted to do the best I could, but I wanted to also continue to grow my leadership skills and, you know, climb that ladder. I, I wanted to make an impact where I can make an impact based on the experiences I've had. So if it meant a position at the Pentagon, I was all for it. Um, so, but, but really, honestly, as a, as a master, as a senior, I, I never seen myself in, uh, the Pentagon positions, especially as a legislative liaison, I've seen this position before and I'm like, wow, that's a pretty cool position, but I don't think I could ever do that. I don't know if I have what it takes to do that. Uh, and now I'm here. Um, and it's, and it's the cause of talent management and force development um, and really good mentors that continue to push me outside my comfort zone to get where I am today. Thank you, Chief Powers, for, for answering that question and just for taking that uh, just, just for taking that question, because it, in my mind, I'm thinking, you, you know, you, you just wake up and you're like, all right, I think I'm going to go work at the Pentagon. But uh, as far as what starting out as a young airman, what what were the things that you prioritized most about your career and as far as your work-life balance? Yeah, great question. So, you know, starting out as a young airman, um, you know, especially my first five years or so, you know, um, I was, uh, let's see, I was stationed in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, interesting location, right? Uh, but it was great. It was great. Uh, many, let's see, I was on three different deployments, um, in Grand Forks. You know, I joined in December of 2000. So, um, you know, after September 11th hit, that is, that is when, um, things got very busy, uh, especially for the CE community. Um, so it was kind of, you know, I was trying to find my way, uh, as, as a young airman. So it was, it was difficult to, to really understand what a work-life balance was because, uh, you know, when I joined the Air Force, it was, uh, you know, after September 11th happened, it was all about being ready, uh, being ready and getting ready to deploy. And guess what happened when you deployed? You deployed and that was, that was a constant, um, that was just constant. You were just totally focused on your deployment at the time. Uh, you came back from deployment, you know, they gave you probably a week or two off and you were getting ready for your next deployment. Um, so the first few years, um, you know, I didn't, I don't, I didn't know until after the fact, you know, when, until I got to New York, looking back, I didn't really have that work-life balance. I didn't give myself the time I needed to really find myself and who I was. Mm. Um, that, that took some time. And, and I had some really good mentors uh, in New York, some, some pretty good leaders that, you know, made me realize, hey, yeah, you, you're great at what you're doing, but what are you doing for yourself? And what are you doing uh, to take care of yourself? Where is that work-life balance? And, that, and that's the, the first time I really heard that. I remember um, 
a chief at the time. Uh, you know, we were come back from our, our second deployment, or actually my first deployment with the New York Guard. Um, and uh, he says, what are you doing for yourself? You, you have been nonstop. Uh, and he made me realize that. And, and so that work-life balance didn't start and probably until about my eighth year um, in the military. And, and what I really started doing is, is one, I started with, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have this, uh, you know, regimented schedule of, I'm not staying late unless obviously the mission needs me to stay late. I'm, I'm going to have a, uh, a, a gym schedule and I'm going back to school. I need to really develop my, my educational skills a little bit more as well. And, and that's how I started doing that and, and really separating, uh, work life and, um, personal life because, uh, you know, that, that chief always told me, he says, Hey, uh, th this job is going to be here tomorrow. Uh, wow. what, what are you doing? And then what are you doing 20 years from now? Um, what you do now could dictate some of those things that you do 20 years from now. And I, I am so glad he had that conversation with me. Chief Powers, uh, what would you say to any airman that is is looking to pivot or just in that that kind of um, I won't I won't just that that doldrums uh, phase where you may you may just be like well how do you get out of that rut because it seems like that from what I'm just from what I'm hearing and and, may, and maybe I could be interpreting wrong but it seems like you uh, uh, like a switch went on and you were just like all right it's time to it's time to get serious take my take my professional development serious when that, how do you pivot. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and and honestly, I would tell any airman, and, and I've seen this, you know, being at the squadron and, and the group level as as SEL sitting down with airmen, is you know, look at what you're doing, look at the time that you're spending in your professional career, um, and look at what you're putting in, and and make sure you are putting the equal amount or more into your personal life and your family. Uh, that is, that is the most important. Um, if, if the other side of your life outside of work is not healthy is, and you're having those issues, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, retain you as an airman because you may, you may, you know, you, your family may be blaming the service for, for this, this imbalance that you have, and, and that's not healthy. Um, and, and the best way to do that is have these conversations, have these conversations with airmen um, early in their careers to understand it's OK to have to put your personal life before work sometimes. Um, you know, obviously we we you hear that, you know, mission first. Um, um, and, and that is that is true when we need to put the mission first. Um, but it is also um, reality that we need to take care of our people. That's our number one priority. And in order to do that, we need to make sure they feel like they can be put first. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. Well said. That's one thing I always like to interject on is like you said, mission first. Um, yes, we do have to put the mission first, but I think commanders and senior enlisted have a strong understanding that the people are a big part of the mission too. And this is a conversation that I had not too long ago with a young airman where they were talking about, you know, well, service before self, service, service, service. And I had to break it down in my perspective. This is, you know, this is a Chief Sully perspective, not a written down anywhere perspective. But my perspective on that, I think that the original authors of that were talking about 
about selfish uh, pursuits that take away from your service, meaning showing up late for work because you decided to play Xbox and not requesting some time off to take a family member to an appointment or calling in sick and faking an injury because you want to binge watch Game of Thrones uh, as opposed to taking a day because you had the conversation with your leadership that you just need a mental health day because you're dealing with some stuff. And I think that's where we get lost in it. Sometimes people just feel it's engage, 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 mission first, service before self. We are, we, capital We, cap, uh, capital W, capital E, we, the airmen are the mission. So as leaders and as airmen, sometimes you need to turn around and say, um, I have this going on. I need to take a knee. The mission's still going to get done, but you're part of that mission too. So leaders and airmen never feel that you have, that it's all go, 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 go. Um, it is, in my opinion, talking about that selfish aspect, that me, 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 me stuff, not, all right, I have this going on. It's going to impact my life. I need to take a knee as opposed to, I just feel like staying home today and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and watching, uh, you know, two and a half men. Uh, it, it, it's not the selfish, but sometimes we need to take care of ourselves. So I just wanted to uh, interject my philosophy on that. Chief, I have a question for you. What, yes. what are you guys working on now? I mean, what, what's big on the Hill? What are we trying to do for our Air National Guardsmen and for the Air National Guard in general that's getting worked up there? And, and what's it looking like? I know that's a pretty big question because you're probably working on 500 things right now and, and we're trying to accomplish a lot. But what are two or three big things that are round in the corner that are looking good? They're going to benefit our guardsmen. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, like you said, obviously we're working on a lot of different things and I could, I could probably talk all day on, on the, the legislative process, but you know, what we're currently working on is, you know, Congress is still in session. Congress has one more week in session right now. So we are, we are 100% focused on making sure we're providing Congress everything they need because what they're doing right now is building, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act 2023, NDAA 2023. And um, when they need our input, we need to give it to them um, and also provide them, you know, our views of some of the language that they're thinking about putting in there. So they are constantly reaching out to us and saying, hey, we're looking at uh, putting this language into the NDAA. How would that impact the guard? Uh, because you know, I, I think the Guard has a strategic advantage of the relationships that we have with Congress, because every decision that Congress makes for the military, uh, it, it impacts the Guard. But those congressmen and women are making decisions that also affect their constituents, because most senators and Congress members have a Guard base or unit within their within their uh, district or within their state. So it also affects, um, you know, a win for them if they can, if they can provide us what they need. So, so currently right now we are uh, responding to uh, NDAA 2023 markups and amendments that they're looking at putting in there. And then we're, we're also, you know, escorting the geos on the Hill with some, some really key engagements to educate 
um, the Appropriations Committee, because we talk about the NDAA a lot, uh, but you know the NDAA provides us the authorizations for the military for programs, but it doesn't come with money. That's the appropriation bills that come with money. So there's a whole separate committee out there uh, working on the appropriation bills to try to get us a budget. Um, so we've been working on uh, key engagements uh, with the chief um, and also with the director of the Air National Guard. He was on the Hill until probably about six o'clock last night, um, engaging with senators on explaining why the Guard needs certain appropriations and certain funding um, in this upcoming 23 uh, bill. Um, so those are really the, the key things that we're working on right now. Um, also, you know, to have a little bit of an outlook, we're there, the FY24 process, what we call the legislative proposal process, that is really what seeds the NDAA. Um, and so FY24, you know, you know, I'm talking on, hey, FY23, Congress is working on that right now. Well, at the same time, we're, we're working on the, the OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense, and the Department of Defense process for what we're going to present to Congress for the FY24 NDAA, which are all due by August. So um, we're working on that as well. The Chief's about to um, approve the legislative proposals that we're going to push to the Secretary of Defense, which the Secretary of Defense will then push to Congress and say, hey, this is the, this is the start of um, 24 NDAA, meaning, hey, this is what DOD wants. And Congress will look at that and obviously they determine um, what will go in there and what doesn't. So um, those are a few of the um, items that we're working on right now. Um, one more item that I will mention, um, you know, and I have a, a meeting with SEA Whitehead tomorrow. He's the senior enlisted advisor to the chief. Um, uh, looking at some engagements for him at, at Angus and Nogus uh, to make sure he is able to provide the enlisted perspective to Congress on what programs we have and, and where the National Guard stands. I think it's really important um, that Congress hears that enlisted perspective because when the chief or the, the director of their National Guard, they are representing uh, obviously the National Guard and the Air National Guard and the Air Force, and they do it very, very well. Uh, but you know, you can never replace the enlisted perspective because the enlisted perspective uh, really drills down to how anything and everything in that NDAA affects people and affects our airmen. And, and SEA Whitehead, he does that very well um, and he's able to educate Congress on that. So those are, the, those are really the, the main items that we're uh, working on right now. Basically, what you're trying to tell me is you have all kinds of free time and you're one of those people <laughs> that sits home all day watching Game of Thrones. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And don't forget the Xbox. Yeah, yep, Xbox, too. Uh, one thing <laughs> I wanted to break down for our enlisted members that are listening is um, what the SEA is and what the hierarchy is, because I actually had this as a question from one of the wings I was visiting not too long ago when they were like, yeah, I, I don't even understand all the the enlisted senior enlisted relationships. So I just wanted to take one quick second uh, to kind of like break it down for everybody. So as every airman knows, you have a command chief. And then in the National Guard, every state has a state command chief. And that covers the air end with the state command chief being the senior enlisted advisor to the tag on air issues and to the air commander on air issues um, in the state. But you also have what's called a C-cell, which is a uh, chief senior enlisted advisor to the tag which can be 
air, or army. So if you think of everything we do on the air side, there's a sergeant major on the army side. And then when you look at being one National Guard, you have uh, one person at the very top of the pyramid that will always be talking to the senior most leader, whether it is uh, in the guard um, uh, state level or all the way up. And in the air side, that would be Command Chief Master Sergeant Williams, who we have had on this show, who is the Command Chief Master Sergeant of the Air National Guard, who works directly for the uh, uh, works directly at NGB for the Commander of the Air National Guard. Then you have the Commander of the National Guard. Now I'm not using the right terms for commanders. I'm trying to not confuse everybody, but everybody has their own title level. Uh, so Chief uh, Williams has a counterpart in the Army Chief Reigns, and then the senior enlisted advisor to the man at the top of the uh, the National Guard, General Hokinson, is SEA Whitehead. SEA is a rank and a position, and it's really, really cool if you ever get to meet SEA Whitehead, senior enlisted advisor, uh, Whitehead, uh, you'll see that he kind of has a chief's rank, but he's got this weird stuff around it. So it is as unique as being having a rank chief master sergeant of the Air Force, where Chief Bass has her own unique rank. And the the unique rank and position is for either Air or Army. And it's a really, really cool thing. Uh, but we are so fortunate in the Air side to have SEA Whitehead there, um, who is, uh, he's a joint, I like to call him a joint leader. He has full understanding of Army and full understanding of the Air. Uh, but it's just really nice to see a uh, former command chief now is sent to that SCA position. So I just wanted our, our listeners to understand that hierarchy. When we start talking about these people, you as an enlisted person at every single level will have a senior enlisted representation in the form of a command chief and at the very top or, or a C-cell, because some of these C-cells are air. They're not all army. In, this, uh, in Massachusetts, it's army. Hey, Sergeant Major Campbell. Um, but you have this hierarchy all the way up, and all these senior enlisted leaders are doing nothing but ensuring that the highest level, the voice of the enlisted force is always heard. And I do not know a general, whether it is brigadier all the way up to general, that does not listen to their senior enlisted advisors. So it's a good time to be a guardsman, because at no other time in history has the voice of the enlisted been so strong with chief powers what he's doing on Capitol Hill and all the way through um, our senior officers are listening to what we have to say as senior uh, enlisted advisors. And our information, what we try to do comes from all of you, the A1Cs, the senior airmen, uh, tech sergeants, masters, seniors, other chiefs, you, we work for you and we advocate for you and we try to st strategically posture what we need to get done with our leaders and we work, work synergistically together. And that's why we have the greatest military in the world. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out for our listeners uh, so that they'd have a, a stronger understanding of how all these relationships work and that they're always being represented all the way up the chain. Chief, I do have one more question for you and this will be my, my final Jeopardy question of the day as we get to right. wrap things up. I've been a member of the National Guard for a long time. I, I spent a lot of time on active duty, but I first entered Guard service in 1987. And I know that I'm, I'm talking, you know, how we are viewed 
at the Hill, how we are viewed uh, from our congressmen or senators, what do they think of the National Guard? That view was different in 1987 than it was when I was deployed for the first Gulf War in 91. And it was different in 2001 and all the way through our, our last 20 year tumultuous history. Uh, but we've done a lot the last couple of years as a guard. What is the prevailing the, the prevailing thought on the guard, the appreciation level? How are we seen as National Guardsmen by our congressmen, our senators right now in 2022? Chief, this is a great question. Um, so as of right now in 2022, and, and based on, you know, the engagements that I have been able to be a part of with the director of the Air National Guard and um, the chief and the vice chief, um, you know, Capitol Hill, the, the senators and the congressmen, the representatives, they have 100% fully supported the National Guard and they want to continue to support the National Guard. And I say that, um, you know, 100%. It really does every congressperson support the National Guard. Well, every interaction that I have, yes, they have. And the National Guard in the past two or three years have really has really amplified who they are and what we support uh, to Congress. And Congress has realized that. Um, and they have been in the spotlight. We have, we have totally been in the spotlight with the, the COVID response uh, to civil unrest, uh, the Capitol Hill response. They, they really... Um, understand now, one, why we need the National Guard, why the National Guard needs to be properly resourced. And now they're trying to figure out how, how do we do this? How do we do this in the, in the most fiscally smart ways to make sure the National Guard is supported? Um, so I would say the Hill is, is very supportive of the Guard. And then also, you know, to the point of, you know, and where we have the advantage um, of every senator, every House of Representative, maybe not every House of Representative, but most of them have some kind of National Guard installation within their districts. Uh, and that is very important to them. Um, so they are really looking at us on, on supporting us in, in every way possible and understanding how unique the National Guard is. Um, one thing we have to remember is you know, Congress turns over, uh, a third of Congress turns over every two years. And that's why it's really important in our, to have our office for the chief uh, to continue to educate and inform Congress on what the National Guard is uh, and understand some of the nuances. Because as we all know, we have a lot of duty statuses and titles, and that can be very challenging to understand sometimes. So when, you know, um, some kind of law or language is put in the NDAA to allow, uh, you know, additional maternity leave to active duty service members. We have to educate Congress on what that means to the National Guard and why the National Guard needs some kind of um, uh, benefit equivalent to that and how that can really work out. And again, that's just an example. Um, and they, they support us and they, they really do. And they, they are very receptive to the National Guard um, and the needs that we have. Thank you for that. And I, that was my assumption that uh, at no other time in history have I seen more support from the from Congress and from you know, the Senate and from the politicians in general, uh, understanding what our capabilities are 
But as you said, that's the caveat, you know, understanding statuses and understanding all these. And we are not going to talk about that in this episode because you want to talk about popsicle headache. Man, that, that goes beyond popsicle headache. That's iceberg headache. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, Yes, for sure. So, Rudiker, any closing questions? Not really, uh, Chief Powers. I just, I just really just appreciate the the time and the and the energy and that you brought to this conversation. I mean, the big question I do have, you 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 did mention a lot of your mentors uh, as you were coming up. If if is there one is there one uh, phrase or one comment or one piece of advice that you would uh, that is like resonating in your head that sticks with you every day from a mentor that you had? Would you mind sharing it with us if possible? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll go back to the, the chief I had in uh, to, to New York. You know, he says, um, you're not going to be an expert at everything you do, but try to be an expert at everything you do. Um, and that really still resonates with me today. I, I get that. Um, you can't, uh, you know, you you can't know everything, uh, but you do have uh, you. Ha- you do have to know where to get the information when you need it. Uh, but when you strive to be the best at everything that you do, um, reality is, is something's got to give sometimes. So um, don't kill yourself on trying to do something um, the best or everything at the best. But, uh, you know, try to be that expert and understand um, what the next step is. And, and he really um he really uh, ingrained that into my thought processes. Hey, you're going to give me a job. I'm going to do everything I can to be an expert at that job. Yes, especially in the military. Sometimes, you know, we're in a position two years and it's just not possible to be that expert. But but I know that I tried the best um, to do everything I could to be that expert. Thank you, Chief. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Chief Powers, thank you for your time today. Uh, I know you have a busy schedule. Uh, every day. So I do appreciate you taking your time and getting us to understand exactly what your role is, uh, what your path is. Uh, I think that you have provided a lot of good insights and a lot of good information for our enlisted. So I appreciate you. I know we're going to be seeing each other again soon. And one of these conventions or one of these trainings or yeah, we'll be, we'll be seeing each other again soon. And, and when we do, I owe you a beverage of your choice. And I appreciate your time today. All right, Chief, thank you. And uh, thank you, Sergeant Whitaker, for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, the, the thing that I really want to leave with um, uh, to all you out there, all the, all the airmen that are listening, is, you know, every day is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to improve, to make an impact, and to be heard. And we need to continue to empower our airmen uh, to, do, to do that. You know, they can improve. Uh, They can make an impact and we need to hear them and we need to hear you. Uh, So I think that's really important to, um, to kind of understand, you know, uh, to be able to make an impact at the lowest level is really proving that we have we have empowered our airmen and in order for them to do that, they need to be heard. Um, So all the airmen out there doesn't matter what rank you are, if you have a good idea, if there's something that you see that we can do better, um, we need to hear that as in leadership. So uh, I, I just wanted to thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate this. I really appreciate the time you've given me to uh, you know, provide my perspective at this level and um, 
really appreciate the Chevrons and uh, continue to listen and look forward to your other uh, podcasts. Thank you, Chief, for the mentorship advice. Thank you just so much for your time today. As we wrap up this episode, there's one thing I wanted to, uh, one thought that I wanted to bring to mind. And, and as we were talking, it popped into my head. And it's uh, it's an old saying. It's like a leadership lesson. As Chief Whitaker had mentioned earlier, you know, it's a leadership lesson you got from a mentor. Well, here's one that just seems to tie in everything. And that is a diamond is nothing more than a piece of coal that transformed itself into its very best under pressure. And it made me think, as a leader, are you releasing the pressure or adding the right amount of pressure to assist your airmen to transform into their very best? And as airmen, are you looking for situations or scenarios or opportunities or, or different things that you can do that will increase the pressure a little bit and help you transform into a diamond. It doesn't have to be something as grandiose as uh, going to Joint Force Headquarters on a stat tour or going to NGB on a stat tour, but just any little assignment, uh, becoming an additional duty for a sergeant for one or something out of your comfort zone that's going to increase a little bit of pressure and let you evolve and let you become your very best you. So think about that. You know, think about as a leader, what can we do to put the right amount of pressure on our airmen? What opportunities can we provide them? What things can we do to take them out of their comfort zone? And what can you do for yourself? I want to thank the listeners for uh, their listenership to our Chevron's podcast. Uh, Tim Sandlin, our producer. And I would like to thank uh, Sergeant Whitaker, who is our latest addition to PA and new part of the team. In closing, if you have any ideas for Chevrons, any guests you'd like to hear, any topics you'd like to have us breach, find me on the global. Uh, Sean. Dot Sullivan.17. Dot Find me in the global. Sean.Sullivan.17. Hit me up with any questions, comments, or concerns, anything you'd like to hear. And thank you 